Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of No Sense Magic. We appreciate the following and hope to help and interest more people in the game. As always, you can post any questions and corrections to our Twitter at No Sense Magic. And keep in mind that myself and Sakashima are by no means experts on this game. So if you hear something on the podcast that is incorrect, we openly welcome corrections to help better educate not only us, but to the new players that we're trying to help and teach as well. Now, I know the last time, you know, uh, with our last podcast, it may have felt like a lecture or may have dragged on. I know that Talia and I know that it's a lot of information that we just threw at you guys. Trust us, it's it gets easier as it is explained. Well, normally gets easier. With all these new mechanics that keep coming out, it's confusing sometimes. Right. Especially with like the uh, new D&D set that's coming with uh, now introducing dice rolling in their mechanic. As if mutate wasn't hard enough to begin with as it is. I love mutate. What are you talking about? It's like easy. So I just want to level with you guys and... You know, I confess, even to this day, I get things mixed up, and I still have trouble wrapping my head around um, mechanics and how the triggers work and timing, all of that stuff that goes with this game. All that said and done, you know, we do hope that it'll help all of you guys. It's always good to have questions. Myself and Sakashima included still have questions, and we still have to go to other people to ask how things actually work and how the ruling on these cards actually operate. And that, it will always kind of, you know, continue, like I said, with uh, talking about how mutating is a hard mechanic to understand and stuff like that. Like, there's always going to be new mechanics, new things are always going to come up with the new cards, and the they're going to trip us up. Now, like, where Sakashima absolutely loves mutate, for example, I absolutely despise it. I cannot wrap my head around it for anything. Me, on the other hand, I love devotion, and I love things that kind of line up like that like to me it just clicked mutate has not clicked for me since the set came out yeah it's one of those sets that's a little different but all in all you'll find a set that you'll you'll love the most especially you typically get your first couple sets you'll just fall right into it's crazy and somewhat mind-boggling how much you have to remember or think about before you go and use it a certain card and stuff like that um I saw something about a trigger jar, quote unquote, where like some people use a swear jar where they put like quarters in and stuff like that. What a trigger jar is simply what we do is put a quarter for every missed trigger that would happen in our games. By the offending player. I may have done that once or two many times. We actually decided to institute the trigger jar as a way during play to encourage the group with new and old decks to make sure that they are doing everything necessary during their turn or during somebody else's turn when their cards are supposed to trigger on the upkeep, on the end step, and so on. Um, there have been plenty of wins and losses on both sides due to triggers being missed. We've pretty much instituted it as a teaching technique and the consequences that come with it among our playgroup. Whether or not you guys want to do something that similar, that's up to you guys. This is something that we chose, you know, to help us uh, to remember and remember what we need to do in the game. And all in all, magic is all about having fun. Yep, the game is only as competitive as you make it. With the jar, though, um, the big thing about it is that when you play a deck that you're familiar with, you already know exactly what you're supposed to do. So when you play something new, um, 
it pretty much is kind of a consequence when you're not reading everything fully because you're like, oh, I already know what this does. I already know this. And then five seconds go by and you missed a trigger. And it could have cost you or you could have gained something as an advantage or a disadvantage throughout the game. Now, I know that we mentioned this last time uh, that we were going to talk about Exile, Sideboard, and Maximum Hindsight. So what the first thing we're going to talk about is the, the Exile. Now, Exiling is basically a zone outside the game itself. Cards that stay removed from the game, or this card that goes into Exile, would be designated into this zone, either near your graveyard or library. That depends how you have your board state set up. Me, personally, I just kind of typically put my Exile next to my graveyard off of my playmat. One of the easiest things to do, so that way... That way you know what is be able to be in play and what is not. You have to be careful with that sometimes because I've had my exile get mixed up with my graveyard a time or two. Not fun. No, it's not fun. Now, there are cards that can gain access to cards that are considered outside the game or in exile. You can temporarily exile cards from the game or permanently to a degree. I use the term permanently very loosely for the following reasons. There are cards like a Ghostly Flicker, where you will exile a card and it will return back into the game on your next upkeep. There are some Planeswalkers that does it. Uh, Kalia likes this particular Planeswalker. Um, his name is Ashiok the Nightmare Muse. His final ability of minus seven allows the controller to go through any face-up cards in your opponent's exile pile and to cast three of them on your side of the battlefield without paying their mana cost. Exile is a good way to remove permits that are indestructible because there's no really other way to remove things that are indestructible because most destroy spells like murder or um, other spells. Naturalize. Naturalize things. Um, Let's say destroy target permanent versus exile. You can be able to target it regardless if it has indestructible or not. That's why it's very helpful for it to be part of of your strategy. Now, one of my personal favorite cards that I love using for Exile is an enchantment called Consulate Crackdown. It costs three generic or colorless mana and two white. And it states that when it enters the battlefield, you exile all artifacts of your opponent's control until Consulate Crackdown leaves the battlefield. I'm a huge fan of this because I know my playgroup plays with a ton of artifacts. Sakashima is um, known for it. Another friend of ours, Lord of the Pit, is also known for it. One or two others, also notorious for using artifacts because they like to ramp or they like to try and control. Yes, and that's what you'll find out when you get into playgroups. Your playgroup will play something different from another playgroup. Whether it's a very controlling uh, game or it will be just burn everything, or super quick, super slow, or mid-game. Each one's very different from the next. Absolutely. The only drawback that I can see about this card, though, is that it only targets what's on the battlefield at the time that it enters. It cannot do anything about any artifacts that enter the battlefield after it. Unless you're, like, flicker flicker it and then do it again. But that requires another card to do so. Yep, there are cards, like you stated, Flicker, that will force you to per- pick a permanent up, and in doing so, all the artifacts would then return to the field. 
and then when Consulate Crackdown is played again, it will target all the artifacts from before it was on the table, and then any new ones that would have been laid out. Mm-hmm. One of my way, favorite things to do for Exile, it's not even Exile in an opponent's thing, it's to Exile my own cards with the mechanic called Foretell, or I will pay a cost and Exile a card so that way no one can touch it. One of my favorites is uh, Saw This Coming, where it's literally a counterspell that no one can no one can deal with. That's why I kind of like that part of the exile for me. The only way that you would actually technically be able to do it is when you go to cast it, we can counter it as it comes in, but that's about it. Yeah, counter or counter. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a huge fan of that. It accounts for something. Depends on who you are. Mm-hmm. A second option that I enjoy um, for Exile is a, actually a sorcery called Revoke Existence. It costs one colorless and one white and states that you need to exile target artifacts or enchantments. Me personally, I find this really helpful when your opponent likes to use mana rocks to ramp. So like a Nyx Lotus, a Chromatic Lantern, Chromatic Ori, things like that. So by me getting rid of their additional mana, it can buy me time or you time for awesome counters, or just on the side, some really big creatures or monsters, or like me, I like to play Sneaky Snakes with Infect. Unfortunately, a couple of my friends in my playgroup have pretty much said that this is pretty much a signature for me because I will use a 1-1 or a 2-2 Infecting Snake and just buff the crap out of it, where it's 12 poison counters and turn one or two. Yeah, it's not fun to be on the receiving end of like, oh, it's just a 1-1 infector. That's not that bad. Seven poison counters later. It only takes ten to kill your opponent. So when you get hit with seven right off the bat, it's not a pleasant experience. Especially when you only have like a few mana. Not an easy comeback. But doable. A third option I like to utilize is an enchantment called Vanishing Light. This one costs two colorless and a white and states... Exile target non-land permanent and opponent controls until Banishing Light leaves the battlefield. When it leaves the battlefield, the card it had exiled returns to play. I like to use this personally to exile an opponent's really big creatures, their enchantments that are damaging to me, or to create a or that create a ridiculous number of tokens, or because my opponents like to use mana rocks. This is just one of the ways that I buy time for myself. Now we know that you know these three. That some of these options that we've mentioned off quite a few were white. Um, there's a lot of different exile things. Um, blue, for, for example, has uh, Swan Song, where you would exile their their creature, and that creature would become a a bird. Like, there's many different ways to exile things. Spoken like a true blue player, Sakashima. <coughs> what? What can I say? Blue is the best. Everybody hates a blue player. I mentioned that in I don't know how many other episodes prior to this. One, I think. Mm-hmm. But again, I mean, I'm not truly much into exile. I like, you know, to counter their spells or steal their stuff by exiling their stuff. So, that's the way I have fun with exile, mostly. And playing with other people's cards. Because who doesn't love to play with other people's cards? This is true. I do steal things from time to time. I'm not the blue player that Sakashima is, but at the same time, most of the cards that we did mention, again, for Exile 
were mostly things that I'm familiar with and that I play quite often and my opponents absolutely hate. That's why counterspells really work. So the next thing we want to talk about is sideboards. Now sideboards contain a 15 card maximum. They're outside of the game and they're separate from the exile. Uh, the really only cards are still four, four max of each copy that you know, still lies unless the card stays otherwise, like Relentless Rats. Sideboards can be swapped on a one-to-one -one basis. If there was 15 cards in your sideboard at the beginning of the game and 65 cards in your deck, those numbers have to remain the same. You can't go from 15 cards in your sideboard to 20 and your deck can't go from 65 to 60. It has to be on a one-to-one -one basis when you're changing out your deck or modifying it between games. Yeah, can you actually imagine if sideboard swapped on like a one-to-two or a one-to-five basis? Yeah, that'd be getting a little crazy. I, I can't imagine that. I'm bad at math to begin with. You think of how many times you would actually have to count to make sure that there were enough cards on either side if you did a one-to-one -one or, or a one-to-two or a one-to-five basis? Holy crap. I get a headache just trying to modify with a sideboard. That's why not everyone uses the sideboard. Now, you guys are probably wondering, why would you have a sideboard or even use one? Well, these cards that are set aside, you know, allow you to change your deck in between games. The purpose of this is being able to modify on the fly against each opponent that you're actually up against. Every player plays differently, and being able to swap cards before each game is helpful. Not everyone plays a sideboard, but it does help. Sakashima, for example, likes to use the sideboard. He has one or two decks that go well with it. Mm -hmm. And I don't envy him because I don't want that personal headache myself. Now, some, uh, some of it was the uh, Giant Wizards one, uh, which I just like to have just a little bit different answers. But the other one is mainly when the Strict Saving set came out, where it had these lesson cards, where you would play a card that would have the state you learned, which would be a lesson. So you pull one of those cards outside of the game and put it into your hand. And with that, you're only allowed to have seven lesson cards in your sideboard as of when Wizards of the Coast uh, updated their their rulings on that. Yeah, because initially it was only 15 cards to begin with. Now with Strixhaven and lesson cards, they've dimmed it down to seven. Everyone builds differently and thinks differently from when they're building cards and stuff like that. There's a there's a lot of cards in Magic's history that you can play with and a lot a lot of people can use. That's why a lot of people use sideboards, not typically us though. So essentially what you know may work against one player, you know, Sakurashima and myself go head to head, um, where I may kick his teeth in in one game and then I pull out a different deck and he has a sideboard, and he's like, oh, I'm going to modify real quick, and then he turns around and kicks the holy living teeth, my living teeth in. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but every player thinks and builds differently, where, you know, a sideboard is a useful and helpful tool if you choose to utilize it, but this is not the end of the world if you choose not to. It's not necessary. The main thing is just having your deck ready to go. A good example of two players building very differently is that I went against um, an outside friend of our playgroup, um, and we were both playing Red White Angels. My deck was actually smaller than it is now, and I literally just yet to change it back. So it was not Commander, I built it to be Commander, tore it apart, 
I made a commander for one game that we actually had as an entire group. So after I made it a lot smaller to fit the commander brief, um, I actually went head to head with him and I didn't even think twice about this when I put it back together. I just took all the cards out and put it back in. So the uh, our friend actually looked at me and kind of smiled and he's like, how many cards are in your deck? I'm like, about 121. Kind of laughed and he goes, no way you're gonna win. No way you are gonna beat me with that. I kind of smiled and looked at him from across the table, and I was like, challenge accepted. Um, the benefit that worked out for me is that I had many different ways of ramping, where I had big nasty angels and I had angel tokens that hit him mercilessly. Um, long and short of this is that, you know, I outpaced him so badly and beat him with overkill, I kind of felt bad in the end, literally kicking his teeth in where, like, if he wore dangerous, he would not be wearing them at that particular point in time. But I know this wasn't incredibly detailed for you guys, but it just goes to show you that even two people who play the same creature type or build with the same thought in mind can actually build completely differently. And it's actually really incredible and fun to see how creative some people can be. There are no limits. And why limit yourself to look at looking what the best cards are or just what everyone else is playing? Find something that you want to play and something you enjoy. Because that, I mean, like we said, I don't know how many times, but magic is all about having fun. If you're not having fun, why are you playing? Myself and Shakashima, literally, we build to break the game. And this is why, you know, we've initially called the, the podcast No Sense Magic. We just want to see what we can do to break things. And then if we break it, how, more, how much more badly can we break it from there? Sky is the limit. Even then, there is no limits. The only limit is yourself, actually, if you think about it. This is very true. So now that we talked about Cyborg, the next thing, or the final thing that we would like to talk about is maximum hand size. So when you start a game, you have seven cards as your max hand. And when you're going... In between turns, at the beginning of your turn, you will draw a card per turn, unless there are cards out there that state you can't. And then when you have played your hand through, if there are seven more cards in your hand at the end of your turn, you will have to discard down the hand size. Which is seven still. Mm-hmm. Unless there are cards out that state otherwise. Yeah. And there are, there's tons of ways to make it larger, smaller, and have no maximum hand size. It's the same. Um... On the same note, there are ways that your opponents can also mess with your hand size as well. When this happens, you're going to be stuck with no cards in your hand unless you have a... and you'll have to discard any cards at the end of your turn. Now, with discarding any cards at the end of your turn, um, this can potentially get ugly and costly. Um, You could either lose the game or you could lose the lead that you had. All actions have responses that are either for better or for worse. This is not always the case because occasionally, you know, the heart of the cards does prevail and you can pretty much top deck a miracle if you're super lucky. On that note, Sakashima seems to think that I am like the god of luck and top decking miracles because for some reason, I always seem to come out with something. 
it's very true. Like, if you ever play with Kalia, you will see that she will always have some sort of answer right from from the get-go of top deck. This is just drawing the card for turn. Yeah, I'm I'm notoriously lucky on top decking. I'm notorious for Well, in this case, we just had a game on Wednesday and poor Sakashima didn't do his math correctly and had no maximum hand size and was holding forty plus cards in his hand. And that's what his maximum hand size was. Was he didn't have one. And he actually took damage by a creature where he had to draw eight cards. And that was all he had left in his library. So he actually lost the game for not being able to draw for turn. Yeah, because if, if you have no cards in your library when you go to draw uh, your draw phase or the beginning of your turn, you will lose the game. And the cards that are, there's quite a few cards that can do, do that, um, like creatures, artifacts, lands, enchantments, sorceries, and planeswalkers, they all can have an effect on your maximum hand size. Uh, the one example that we were talking about, how I I had to draw eight cards per turn because a creature took damage was Body of Knowledge, which is simply a creature that states you have no maximum hand size. Um, an artifact that actually comes to mind for me for that affects your maximum hand size is actually the Venser's Journal. I actually use that. Um, I'm a huge fan of it because, honestly, when you're trying to drop really big, nasty things, the last thing you want to be doing depending on the deck or how you built it, is to be throwing your really big stuff into the graveyard if you have no way to get it. If you have the ability to hold on to it for a little bit longer because you have no maximum hand size, it does help, but it's not always the best option. Mm-hmm. Because, like we were talking about exiling stuff before, with you can exile creatures and you know, artifacts. It's a little bit harder to affect lands, um, and one of those lands that you have no maximum hand size is Reculating Tower. And then an enchantment, since we didn't mention that, uh, affects its maximum hand size is Price of Knowledge. A sorcery that comes to mind, thanks to Sakashima, is Seagate Restoration, which also states that it has a maximum hand size. And lastly, but surely, we can't forget our, forget about our Planeswalkers here. And Tamiyo the Moon Sage is one of those that gives you that ability to have no maximum hand size. I'm going to have to trust you on that. I've never seen that card, let alone play it. So I'm going to have to go with what you know. Yep, and I, I looked up the card before we talked about the maximum hand sizes and whatnot. So Now, with that being said, there are creatures like, pardon my tongue on this, because I'm probably going to end up murdering this particular card. Um, I'm just going to call it Jin the Core Augur. This creature makes um, it where your maximum hand size is reduced by 7. With this ability, you would be able to slow down a player that has no maximum hand size. The problem is, is there are also drawbacks when you do this. If a player is playing, for example, Radkiss the Pit Dragon, he will have double strike for as long as you are hellbent, which means that you have no cards in hand. Um, so when you're doing this and you want to affect an opponent's hand size, you need to be very careful, so we're advising caution when you do this. There are pros and cons. To each scenario and you have to think and plan according to what you're up against or you know honestly just saying what the hell and go for it nothing wrong with experimenting and trying to bait spells out of an opponent's hands i am notorious for doing that to sakashima because i know he's a blue player and i know he likes to keep his tricksies up his sleeves 
I also tried to trick the trick of the trick of the trick. See what I did there. The problem is, is you have a hard time doing that because you never know for sure if I'm bluffing or not. How many times have I been holding on to a land just to make you think that I've been holding a counter spell? Yeah, there's been a few times, but that's why you always need some open man. Wow, I, I can't believe, Kelly, how much information uh, there are cards, and I mean, I keep forgetting all the time. I hope that I touch on some of these cards for you guys and for ourselves, <laughs> and with our little bit of explanation, hopefully you all understand how this affects your gameplay and how to become better magic players. Yep, our goal is to help and to teach to the best of our abilities, and we will do our best to find the solutions or the answers that you are looking for when you post questions to us. Now, the disclaimer on all of this, we are not telling you guys to not use these cards or the abilities. We are simply using them as examples to help educate and guide you to understanding. We, again, are not by any means experts on this game, and we are still learning, sometimes even alongside you as we do this podcast. We do want this to help you guys, and we want this to be a guide as much as possible, but this is not a standard which you need to be held up to. Have your own goals when you're setting up your own magic journey, because having a goal for yourself and having a way that that you understand magic is important. As always, we enjoy hearing from you guys. Without you guys, this podcast would not be possible. We are hoping to expand our listening audience, and as always, and thanks for sticking by us while we work out the kinks to make this the best that it can be. Don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe to us at No Sense Magic on our Twitter. And again, if we have stated anything that is incorrect, we welcome any and all corrections to make this as helpful as possible to the new and the old players. And always, from us to you, happy playing and building. And may the odds be never in your favor, but may the heart of the cards prevail. And with that said, everybody, thank you for listening to us. And what we're going to talk about next time is color choices and themes of a deck. Have a good night, guys. Hope to hear from you soon.